Hey folks, it's Eric Erickson. You're about to listen to the Christmas program podcast that I run on radio. Full disclosure, I've had to cut out the music. Uh, the lawyers make us do it. Uh, podcasts with music get into all sorts of problems. So we had to cut out the songs. I apologize. I haven't had to do this in the past, but uh, now we're being required to do it. Otherwise, the podcast gets taken down. So there it is. But have a Merry Christmas. You can go on uh, Apple Music slash E.W. Erickson. You can find all the music that I play in the show and get that playlist off Apple Music by following me at E.W. Erickson. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show from the North Georgia Mountains to the Florida Line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic Ocean. This is our Christmas special. Yeah, I like to dedicate uh, the holidays, Christmas and Easter for this uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas, Good Friday, uh, spending time really on uh, the real stuff that matters. And, and let me tell you why. Right now, you are getting ready or have opened presents. Uh, we're, we're going to just, just full disclosure, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm doing this on Christmas Eve, and we're going to rerun this on Christmas. I'm not taking your phone calls because I don't like to have other people working on Christmas and Christmas Eve if I can. So I'm not going to take phone calls today. Um, and thank you very much, uh, to Chris Burns for filling in for me over the holidays, but I, I don't, I don't want guest hosts. Uh, God bless Jim for being here with me and helping me do this. Uh, but it is important for me not to burden other people, uh, call screeners, producers, guest hosts, and things like that. Um, so it's me here and I welcome you and I want to tell you, that right now this nation is yelling at each other over impeachment. We have spent this year yelling at each other over all sorts of things, and we're not going to yell at each other today. We are going to, if nothing else, consider this a radio tithe. I am very blessed with a job I love. I don't consider it a job. I don't consider it work. And I feel like I should uh, talk about the things that really matter, take a 50,000-foot worldview, and let you get to know me a little better. And I do that. I pause the politics and the daily headlines at Christmas and Easter, uh, play good uh, music, uh, oftentimes from local churches. Uh, you'll hear churches from around Georgia today, in addition to stuff like Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God, uh, Lauren Daigle's Oh Holy Night, uh, and others. Uh, but I also want to get in some good Georgia groups as well, while we pause and reflect on things that are much more important than daily politics. I, I am going for some of you who have known me for a while and have listened for a while. I may sound like a little bit of a broken record here. But... I have to tell you that life is more important than the politics and the news of the day. And if you listen to talk radio, you watch Fox News, you watch CNN or MSNBC, you can sometimes get distracted by the political fight of the day. To my friends who are Republicans, the truth of the matter is, yes, on health care, uh, your life was disrupted by Washington, D.C. and Barack Obama. But by and large, your life really was not disrupted by Barack Obama. In fact, it is objectively true. There, the economy did begin to turn around while Barack Obama was president. People did start going back to work, although not at the, the rate that some suggested. 
but your life was not meaningfully affected by Washington, D.C., and yet you are obsessed with Washington, D.C., as are the Democrats listening. And the reality is, for those of you who are Democrats, Donald Trump has not made your life worse. If anything, you have more money in your paycheck thanks to his tax cut. And his deregulation has increased uh, the economic engine that did begin under Barack Obama. And I realize Republicans don't like to give Barack Obama credit uh, for helping uh, get us out of the recession that began to happen at the end of the Bush administration. And I realize Democrats don't like to give Donald Trump credit. Uh, this is as political as I'm going to get. And, and my, my only point is this. Washington never fundamentally changed your life with few exceptions. And Washington never will. Your local government will, your school board will, your mayor will, your city council will, your county commission will, your water authority will, your state government will, vastly more than your federal government. And yet we in this country obsess over the politics of Washington, D.C. And we should be mindful of the fact, I think, that Washington, by and large, really doesn't impact us uh, as much, and yet we are so obsessed with it. And so, if anything, I, I take these days in the Christmas season and on Good Friday to recalibrate the things that really matter. Our, our local community matters. Our local politics matter. Our, our politics and news here in Georgia matter much more than Washington. But there's something else that matters as well. And that is your faith and worldview and your outlook. I know there are people listening right now who do not believe there is a creator. They do not believe that uh, Christ is king. They do not share my worldview. I know there are conservatives listening right now who are agnostic or atheist. And I know that there are people listening right now who consider themselves Christians and we have theological, fundamental theological disagreements. But we should be able at this season to put that aside and focus on the things that matter. And I should be able here and now to share with you my worldview, the reason I do these things, and we can find some common ground. I, I'm, I really genuinely am a believer in the idea that whether you are Democrat or Republican, whether you are progressive or conservative or libertarian, uh, whether you believe in God or not, we're all Americans, but we are all, whether you accept or not, made in the image of the living God, and we should all be able to find things that we share in common outside of politics because politics has become all-consuming in this nation, and yet politics really isn't the most important thing, and I, I want to tell you, I know politics isn't the most important thing. Had I not known it for certain, this week in 2006, I would have known it for sure. I, I've told the story just a couple weeks ago on, on this program. Uh, for those of you who are new here, or for those of you who aren't, I apologize, the rest of you, bear with me here. Labor Day 2006, my wife 
had a gallbladder attack and, and they didn't know what it was. They thought her symptoms were of a pulmonary embolism. And we rushed her to the ER. They scanned her lungs. There were, was no pulmonary embolism. They said, uh, you got something there. It doesn't look like it's a big deal. It must be your gallbladder. Go to the beach. So we went to the beach for Labor Day, went down to Gulf Shores with her parents and she had emergency surgery while we were at the beach. Now, I had taken a job uh, back in 2004. MSNBC had asked me to come up to New York for the end of the Bush-Kerry election and blog the election for them as a conservative. I was the only conservative. They had three liberals and and me as the one conservative. Pretty pretty obvious where we're going. That's where I actually met Joe Scarborough. We became friends. Uh, and his staff kind of took me under their wing. They were the only people there who supported George Bush back in 2004 at MSNBC. But uh, one of the lawyers at my law firm, now the federal judge down in, in middle Georgia, came into, in, came into my office. And he asked me if I knew what the definition of a dumb rear end, for those of you who have family listening, what a dumb rear end was. I said, no. He said, you. He said, you don't like practicing law. Go do politics. So within a year, I had left my law firm, uh, Selen Melton down in Macon, for those of you who know the firm. I had left Selen Melton and took a job in Washington, commuted back and forth three days one week, four days the other week, for about a year until my friends and I could get Red State off the ground. During that time, MSNBC had called me, asked me to go up to New York, cover the election. Uh, by 2005, I was running Red State full-time. I, I quit the job in D.C. My wife said either she was going to kill me or I was going to kill myself. I was traveling so much. I, I, we had, My wife had given birth to our first child, and I, I really have no strong memory of my daughter her first year because I was gone constantly from uh, 2005, uh, August 2005 until into 2006. I just had no memory. And so I quit that job, got a job in, uh, started doing red state full time, but then November came around and the Republicans got beat and we were wiped out to, to see and, and the revenue at red state went to zero. So the week before Christmas, uh, in 2006, my wife finally went in for a follow-up from those spots on uh, her lungs that they found when they thought she's having a pulmonary embolism. And she, while she was gone, my business partners called me and told me I, I got to go find a new job out of, out of work. And my wife comes home and I go downstairs to tell her, I don't know what we're going to do. We're, we're a week before Christmas and, and I've got my last paycheck, but she has this look on her face and I knew something was wrong. And she came inside and looked at me and she said that they found a blood clot in my jugular vein. I got to go to the hospital. They're putting me on blood thinner and monitoring me in the hospital. I'm like, well, this is something. So off she goes. And while she's there that day, her doctor uh, consults with a pulmonologist about the spots in her lungs. They decide there's a very rare form of lung cancer that can present itself with the spots in the lungs. And, and I shouldn't say it's a rare form of lung cancer. It's a rare form of cancer and ultimately moves to the lungs in its final stage and decided she needed a lung biopsy. So the week before Christmas, 2006, my wife has a lung biopsy. And I'll never forget, they call me down a, a corridor and they... Give my wife six months to live the week before Christmas. She's got six months to live. I'm out of a job and I'm about to be a widower a week before Christmas in 2006. And I had to tell my wife because the 
doctors, there's a it's pouring down rain in Macon. The doctors have to go uh, tend to the emergency room. There's been a terrible wreck. And so I volunteer to be the one to tell her. And she wakes up in anesthesia, and I get to tell her she's going to die. I have literally looked my wife in her eyes and told her she was going to die. And then I had to go get our daughter from daycare. That was Christmas in 2006. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, telling you my Christmas story, really my reason for doing this program every year the way I do it. Uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, <laughs> left on a cliffhanger, did we not? Uh, my, my wife, a week before Christmas, 2006, is given six months to live, and I get to be the one to tell her because the doctors had to go help in the emergency room. And then I had to go get my child from daycare. And so I go get my my daughter, who's one, from daycare. And by the time I make it home, I'm so emotionally exhausted. It's pouring down rain. And I get her. I had an old beat-up Acura I'd actually bought from my sister-in-law. And I wind up sitting in the mud, leaning up against the back passenger tire, crying with this one-year-old who has no clue what's going on, patting me on the face. And all I can think is, oh, you're going to have no memory of your mother. And I finally get up and I get us inside the house and dry us off and get her changed and fed and down. And and I go up to my office and just begin to pray and pray and pray. And, you know, Christians talk about the peace that transcends all understanding. I I can tell you it's a real thing. And family finally gets there uh, and relieves me so I can go back to be with Christy. And she, she does not believe, but... I got to tell you, we we have conversations that you don't have unless your spouse is dying about my career and trajectory and what I should do and should I remarry and, and should we move closer to her parents or my parents or what do we do? And we have those conversations. And the thing she tells me, she says she, she views me as a catapult throwing good people and good ideas into the arena. Not necessarily me, uh, but, but good ideas and good people so that other people can judge those ideas. And that's what I should do with my life. And, you know, about 10, 1030 that night, the doctor came in, the one who told me my wife, they thought she had six months to live. He says, uh, pathology has come back and they've looked at the scan and they don't really know what it is, but they don't actually think it's cancer, having re-looked at it. They, they don't think that it's cancer. She's going to be fine. She, she's here with me today. Uh, she was fine. Uh, she had a rare condition uh, that they had never seen before. The, the Mayo Clinic was able to diagnose it. Uh, fast forward a few years and she, she does have this lung issue and she does, she's, she's gets a little more sick than most people do when, when she gets stuff in her lungs and we decide she should be a stay at home mom. And so she stays home with the kids. Uh, this is 2009. Now uh, my company, uh, so the doctor comes in that night, tells us that we have really have nothing to worry about. She's going to be fine. And the next day, literally, I think the next day, literally, as in literally, uh, my business partners at Red State get a phone call from a group in Washington, Eagle Publishing. They want to buy Red State. I mean, within 24 hours, y'all, to put this in perspective, within 24 hours, a week before Christmas in 2006, I lose my job and my wife is given six months to live. And God does miracles. 
And in that 24-hour period, I go from losing my wife and job to having my wife and having my job. It was a, it was a roller coaster. A week before Christmas, a roller coaster. And but by 2009, I'm in this job and we Christy needs to be a stay-at-home mom. She's listening to Dr. Laura. Dr. Laura is very insistent on this with, with her health situation and all. We just think we've got two kids now. Be a stay-at-home mom. We don't know how we're going to make ends meet. My, I'm on her insurance because insurance would – I would go broke on my company because I would be out of network since I didn't live in D.C. And I go to Dillard's and get an application to start selling suits. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell suits on the side at Dillard's. And my boss calls from Eagle Publishing, and his name's Joe, and he says, you know, we realize you you haven't had a a pay raise. And the entire time you've been here, you haven't had a pay raise. And we need to give you a pay raise. And my pay raise was equal to exactly what Christy was given up in income. And within three days, a lady from CNN calls, and she says, my name's Michelle. You don't know me, but I'm the person who hired you or got you to come up to New York for MSNBC back in 2004. I'm at CNN now. I'd worked for Tim Rustard until he died. I'm at CNN, and I'd like to offer you a job as a contributor to CNN. And thus, I moved into TV, and the wild ride of my career began. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, our annual Christmas show. Uh, I hope you can catch it. I'm here Christmas Eve. Uh, I, I, I don't like to have a guest host. Uh, uh, I don't want to make somebody work on Christmas Eve. Uh, I don't want to have a call screener. Uh, my producer's in Montana. Uh, so it's me and, and Jim. Thank you, Jim. Uh, here doing work, and we will replay this uh, on uh, Christmas as well. And I'm I'm just I'm explaining. I I know some of you are new to the show. I know some of you are new to listening to me, and I just want you to get a sense of who I am here. And we're gonna do fifty thousand foot topics. We're we're gonna talk theology today. I I, I say in one of the promos, I talk uh, politics, news, culture, religion, and cooking. All the stuff you're not supposed to talk about. But in two thousand six, my trajectory in life kind of changed, and my focus. When my wife was was misdiagnosed with cancer and given six months to live, but you, you have these talks like you don't have uh, if you're not going to die. And we had those talks, and my wife told me she felt like I was kind of a catapult, and, and it, my job was to put good people and good ideas into the conversation. And uh, in 2009, when she decides to be a stay-at-home mom, here comes CNN offering me a job on TV at CNN. And, you know, I, two different, I talked to two different people, Rush Limbaugh and Joe Scarborough at MSNBC. I talked to both of them. Rush is a friend. And, and I reached out to Hannity, who put me in touch with people at Fox. But uh, Rush and Joe Scarborough, both of them, who are diametrically opposed on so many things, both of them encouraged me to go to CNN, uh, to be a missionary, if you will, that there weren't any good conservatives there, that I should go there. So I did. And it was, it was deeply rewarding. Uh, and while I was there... Uh, WMAC in Macon, where you're, you're listening to me now on WMAC, I, by accident, they parted ways with a local host who got in a little bit of trouble and they needed someone to fill in and they reached out. The news director at the time reached out. I was on CNN at the time 
and asked if I could do morning radio. I had never done radio before. Kenny Bergamy, a, a longtime friend of mine who's at the Georgia Farm Bureau, used to be on radio in Macon. He had let me fill in for him one time. The day after Christmas, uh, I was a lawyer, drove back from my in-laws in Carrollton to fill in on the radio and got one phone call in three hours. And he was an old man upset about the rise of popularity of fake Christmas trees. That was it. That was the only radio experience I had. So they put me on, and uh, I was there, and, and up in Atlanta at WSB Radio, they uh, let let go a guy who was, they were raising him up to be Neil Bortz's replacement for whatever Bortz got to be retired, if you know who Neil Bortz is. And I was on radio and making for three months, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. I got paid literally in an expired gift certificate to Outback Steakhouse. The only reason I know it was an expired gift certificate is because I took my wife to dinner and wound up having to pay. Uh, but, um, as luck would have it, when the new guy came, they were looking for a replacement at WSB in Atlanta. And the, the new guy basically got my volunteer position in Macon and I wound up getting his job in Atlanta because Herman Cain decided to run for president and they needed someone they had no bench and they needed somebody to fill in for, for Herman to replace Herman. And so I got really technically hired to replace Herman Cain, who was running for president. <laughs> and um, I've I've been on the radio ever since. They did not know it wasn't my job. The The president of the company heard me on the radio, had read my website, Red State, uh, thought it was my radio show, and, and they offered me Herman's job. And I didn't tell him I actually had no experience in radio until after I got hired. And I've been there ever since. And so in August of this year, I got the wild idea of doing a second radio show. So I do uh, four to six in Atlanta and now do nine to noon statewide except Atlanta. Uh, so my voice is all you can hear me every corner of the state of Georgia now. I, God help you if you do. <laughs> I, I tell people all the time I, I, I do have a face for radio, but I have a voice for print. But here I am nonetheless uh, across the state of Georgia. Well, you know, on radio, I'm I'm a Christian explicitly so not a good one but i am one it it informs my worldview i believe there's a heaven and a hell i believe there's a last day i believe that those who are on jesus's side are on the winning team uh i i may be an incurable pessimist but i'm also quite an optimist because i've read how the book ends it ends uh with a pale horse and johnny cash singing backup music uh i'm you know, I'm I'm on the winning team. I, however much I'm a loser, I'm on the winning team, and that's what counts. And it shapes my worldview, and it shapes what I do. And and I see the world through this lens. I see the the rise of, for example, uh, cultural progressivism, uh, secularism, and hostility to faith. It's all part of the plan. God's got a plan. And my life, I have gone through my life to tell you how I got here to you hearing my voice right now. And it is all part of God's plan. And I don't know what the plan is. But I know I'm a part of it, and I know he's got a role for me to play. He's got a role for you to play. And you may not know that what that is, and you may be stuck and feeling stagnant. And you may be in God's waiting room waiting for him to act. You, you know, the, the Jewish people waited 400 years in silence um, between their, their return and Christ. We can wait. You can wait. We all need to learn a little patience. Patience doesn't hurt us. But I got a plan and I got a role to play. Well, several years ago, I, I mean, I talk like this on the radio and it rubs some people the wrong way. I, I've, I've had complaints from people saying he, he talks about Jesus too much on the radio. I, well, it, it's who I am. I'm sorry. I don't try to do it often except at Christmas and Easter, but sometimes it comes in depending on the news of the day. 
But several years ago, having talked like this, I, I started getting invited to preach at local church, little churches, needing a fill-in preacher on a Sunday, uh, asking if I would come in. They heard me talking Jesus or, or culture or faith on the radio, and I, I said no because I'd never been to seminary and felt bad doing it. So several years ago, decided to go work on my MDiv at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm in a PhD program now at Southeastern Baptist uh, in Wake Forest, but uh, <laughs> I, when I mentioned it on air that, uh, you know, okay, folks, I'll come preach for you now. I've been in seminary. The number of those churches reached out and they said, well, what church are you in? I said, Reformed Theological. Oh, Reformed, huh? One of those. Well, I, th- I think the preacher's drying his hair that Sunday. I, 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 I'm, I'm being flippant here, but I, I actually am really serious. I primarily went to seminary because I was getting asked to preach on Sundays while as a radio show host in Atlanta, and these churches followed back up with me when they found out I was going to a, a seriously academic but reformed seminary. They're like, yeah, probably not. But I, I stayed in seminary nonetheless. I, I found it deeply rewarding to be able to check out of politics for a little while and, and spend time on my faith. And my favorite seminary professor is from South Carolina, a Welshman who lives in South Carolina. And he told me one time, I was filling in for Rush Limbaugh, and he, he I picked him up from the airport in Atlanta. He flies in from South Carolina to teach at RTS, and we're driving up to Marietta to campus. And he, he says, you know, I, I got people in my church who hear you on the radio and they like you. And whether you believe it or not, you got a pulpit. And given what the scripture says about uh, preachers leading people astray, you you need to be here, whether you believe it or not. And I, oh, I believe him. I do. Uh, we've all got a role to play. God's got a plan for all of us. And honestly, I, I view my role in life as being on radio, talking about the topics that some program directors might get mad about or, or management or, or you, the listener, might get frustrated with me on occasion. But I, I think letting you know there's someone out there who believes like you is important because some of you can't say what I can say. Some of you can't get away with what I can get away with. And some of you think you're alone in secularism in society is designed around the idea of making you feel isolated and alone. And this is the history of Christianity, frankly. It is why the Romans wanted to take Scripture from people. Do you know where the word traitor comes from? The word traitor comes from the Tratadors. The the Tratadors were early Christians who, in the persecutions of the Roman Empire, would trade their Scripture for their life. The Romans would come, say, hand us over your word of God, and they would hand it over. Uh, pay homage to the emperor, and they would be spared. And, and they were called the Tratadors. They they traded their scripture for their life, and, and could they be welcomed back into the church? It was one of the early uh, fights among Christians of could these people be forgiven? And the answer ultimately was yes. They need to repent, but they can be forgiven. And we get the word traitor from it. Uh, the Romans knew they needed to take people's scripture away, and they needed to isolate people. They needed to make people feel they were alone. And if they could make you feel alone, they could probably get you to reject your faith. And we see that in secularism today, uh, and not just on the issue of Christianity. We see it on a host of socially conservative uh, issues on, on society, on, on uh, the alphabet gang issues, the LGBTQIAATP, whatever. The alphabet gang. We, we, we see it on these things as forcing people to censor themselves. So I view my role not just to give you the news of the day and analyze it for you and give my opinion for it. And, and you know, primarily, you know what my job is, believe it or not, is to entertain you. Uh, it, it, maybe I'm not being entertaining right now. My job is to entertain people on the radio. 
try to give you the news. And in a day where we become morally relativistic on both sides, both sides have their own truths. You've got your truth. I've got my truth. No, as a, as a Christian, I believe there's an absolute truth. His name is Jesus. And we have an obligation to seek real truth in this world if we are someone of faith. And I believe that's my job. And oftentimes it puts me at odds with my friends because I, I say, you know what? What the guy on the news reported really wasn't fake news. It really was true. They're No, I, I heard it on some some person. No, it's fake news. No, it's 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 real. But my job is also to let people know, in addition to entertaining them, you're not alone. You, you believe that there, there was a virgin who gave birth to a child. What an absurd thing to believe, and yet we do, and there's historic evidence for it. We believe this child grew up, was, was tortured, was crucified, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and, and he will come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe these things, and people tell us, you're crazy. That's not true. It's, it's anti-science. And it's my job to tell people, you know what? There are two billion people on planet Earth who believe this. You are in the minority, not us even though we don't talk about it. But culture, it tends to be secular and, and tries to get us to shut up about this stuff. And so I'm very happy to be one of the people who stands up and says, these are the things we believe in. And so for the next little while, I want to delve in to the things we believe in. I find it very important to do this. Uh, and my apologies to you if you were looking for raw politics today, if you were looking for the headlines of the day, if you were looking for detailed analysis of impeachment, um, I'm afraid I'm not doing that today. What I'm doing is reminding people of what we believe and why we believe it, uh, where it comes from, what the history of it is, the facts and figures of faith, if you will. I think that's way more important uh, than any of this other stuff, even if we talk about that way more than we talk about this. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, our annual Christmas program. Glad to have you with me. You know, it, I, I like to incorporate good Christmas music. Normally, you won't ever hear words played in the songs that we run on this program because I don't like to talk over people singing. Um, eh, but at Christmas, there are a lot of good Georgia groups and others that I like to to play. And, and music is an essential part of Christmas. And Christmas is my favorite holiday. I love Christmas. I love decorating for Christmas. I grew up in Dubai and uh, in the Middle East. And, and our family would still celebrate Christmas. We had a Christmas tree and everything in the desert in a, in a Muslim country. Uh, I love Christmas. Luke 2 tells us that uh, the angels uh, came forward to the shepherds and shown themselves. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Some people say it, you know, glory to God in the highest and on earth, um, peace and goodwill towards men. We we don't actually know the song of the angels. We don't know how they sang. We, we don't know whether it was a cappella. Did they have an orchestra? Did they have instruments? We don't know if they did it in a modern style or, or did it sound like Beethoven or Bach or Chopin or Mozart? We, we don't know. Did it did it sound familiar to the shepherds, or did it sound celestial and otherworldly? Was it spooky? Did it make the hair on the back of their neck stand up, or was it something that comforted them as they see the, the angels appear? It says they were filled with great fear, and the angel says, Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. And the whole host of angels, a multitude, begin to sing. What did it sound like? We have no idea. 
We don't know whether it was a cappella. We don't know if they had tenor and alto and soprano. We don't know if they had an orchestra where their trumpets, where their horns, where their drums, where their hearts, where their lyres, where their piano. Was there a saxophone? Was it like Charlie Brown's Christmas? We, we don't know. But what we know is the message. Because the the orchestral accompaniment is not important. The arrangement of the piece is not important. The sound of the music is not important. The music is important. We know there will be music in heaven. If the angels have a choir, a heavenly choir, and they sing for the shepherds, they will sing for us. What's not important is, is how it sounded. What's not important is what language it was in. What's not important is is who composed it beyond God himself. What's not important was whether it was divided into sections. Did they do it in the round? Was there percussion? Were there wind instruments? Were there horns? Was there brass? None of that is important. What is important is the message of Christmas. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what's important. That message. We don't know how it sounded. But we know what the message was. For the next two hours, I want to focus on the message, the history, the covenants, the language, the music. These things, we get so bogged down in the news of the day, all of us. You're frazzled right now. You're worried. Is everything perfect under the tree? Is everything perfect in the kitchen? Do you have everything you need from the grocery store? Is anything going to be burned? Oh my goodness, that relative's coming, that guy, that woman. Are the kids going to be happy? Have I overspent? Have I underspent? Do I need more presents? Do I have all the presents? Where are the presents? Let's focus on what really matters. The presents under the tree don't matter. The food really doesn't matter. The news today, impeachment, whatever, it doesn't matter. What matters is that I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That, my friends, matters. That's the news that matters Let's focus on that for the next two hours. Eric Erickson here on the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Merry Christmas to you. This is a show about Christmas, about the real reason for the season, putting aside the politics of the day, the news of the day, the, the headlines, the, the selective outrages, all the things people are gossiping about. Let, let's focus on the real meaning of the season the real reason that we are here is to celebrate a risen Lord. And I want to focus on that and do as I do every year for this beginning. Well, where the story really begins. Luke chapter two, beginning at verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, curious phrasing, is it not this? In chapter in verses 18 and 19, when all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Well, Mary is set apart there. Why? Well, Luke was a, a doctor, we believe, and we know he interviewed people. In fact, if, if you read Mary the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise. What scholars who have studied this in, in the original Greek and the earliest manuscripts we have say there, there are plenty of notations or suggestions and word choices that Luke interviewed someone who gave him Mary's uh, Song of Praise. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of a servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. The, the, the Magnificat Someone told Luke this in Aramaic, and he translated it into Greek, and we can tell that from the word choices that Luke used. And then he uses this curious phrasing in the second chapter of Luke that uh, these other people wondered what was going on, but Mary treasured up these things. He clearly had interviewed Mary. I mean, that's the implication here with Luke's word choices. He interviewed Mary. Pretty striking. Pretty striking. This is an interview of Mary that Luke has conducted. You know, a lot of people say that none of this is real, that, that, that we believe by faith, and we do believe by faith. There are whole parts of the Bible on, on believe like faith, by faith, but there's plenty of evidence. We have an evidence-based faith. A lot of people don't want to confront the evidence. They don't want to argue the evidence. They just want to say, just believe. But there's plenty there just, just by historic standard. You know, we accept that Socrates existed, though Socrates didn't leave any writings behind. A, a few people are so intent on saying Jesus is imaginary, they, they've decided Socrates is too. Uh, they're weak-minded fools. Socrates didn't have any writings on his own, but Plato, Xenophon, Aristophanes, they all knew that Socrates lived. They all wrote about Socrates. We know they existed. We have their writings. They lived at his time, and we can derive knowledge of Socrates from those who knew him. Same way we can do that with Jesus. Now, we know we're not with Jesus is, is God, just Jesus the man lived 
modern scholarship has spent a lot of time trying to disprove biblical writings. And if you start at the premise that they're frauds, guess what? You're probably going to conclude they're frauds. But we do largely know that Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew. We do know that Mark was written based on the eyewitness testimony of Peter. We know that Luke was written by a doctor who interviewed eyewitnesses and investigated their claims. We know John uh, because John has so many friends who testified that, that John was the Apostle John. Three of the four of the, the Gospels are based on eyewitnesses. The fourth is based on interviews of eyewitnesses by someone who became an eyewitness to the work of the Apostles. And then we've got Peter and John and James and Jude uh, written by eyewitnesses. And then there's Paul who saw Christ on the road to Damascus, was blinded. But it goes beyond these books as well, and, and that's where we should spend a little bit of time. We know there was a man named Irenaeus. We, we know he was born in AD 130 in Turkey. He died in, in AD 202 in France. We have the writings from Irenaeus. We have the writings documenting his existence from others. And we know Irenaeus studied under a man named Polycarp. We know Polycarp existed. We have writings from Polycarp. We have writings about Polycarp. He was born around 69 AD. He was martyred in 155 AD. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he's done me no wrong, said Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. It was AD 156. He climbed into a pyre where Roman authorities burned him alive. Eyewitnesses were there. They reported this. They said the local authorities respected Polycarp. They begged him to recant his faith in Jesus, and he wouldn't. He said, eighty and six years I've served him, and he's done me no wrong. The Romans, they didn't even tie Polycarp to a post in the funeral pyre because they knew he wasn't going to flee. He was that respected by the local authorities officials. Polycarp fed his captors. He prayed over them. And then he climbed into the pyre to die, burned alive. Some historians say the flames wouldn't burn him and they ultimately stabbed him in the heart. We know about Ignatius. Ignatius wrote, he was written about, he was a friend of Polycarp's. The two were the, the first generation of church leaders after the apostles. Ignatius was born around 35 AD. He was martyred being fed to wild beasts in the Circus Maximus. He was split open, disemboweled, and fed to wild beasts in the Circus Maximus. Ignatius and Polycarp, we know they live. We have their writings. We have the writings of others who testify to them. And both of these men say they studied under a man named John. And they both identified him as the Apostle John. And they attribute the Gospel of John to him. They learned about Jesus through him. We also know of a man named Clement. We know he existed. Paul references Clement in Philippians 4.3. We know that Clement knew Paul and Peter and, and John. We, we know Clement wasn't an eyewitness to Christ, but he was an eyewitness to these men. Clement was tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea for refusing to reject Jesus. Irenaeus claimed Polycarp and Ignatius studied under John. Polycarp and Ignatius made the same claim. They treated John as an eyewitness to Christ. Clement was an eyewitness to Peter and Paul for sure. Well, we know that he documented their existence and their claims to be eyewitnesses. Peter, John, Matthew, James, and Jude all wrote books of the Bible claiming to be eyewitnesses to Jesus and the events of his life. Then there's Paul, who we know persecuted the early church and then claimed he had a supernatural encounter with Christ, uh, a, a resurrected Christ. Other church leaders who he sought to, to kill took him into the church and affirmed his ministry. We don't even have to get to Paul to establish this, though. Either Jesus existed or a whole lot of people over a century collaborated in an elaborate conspiracy to create him. To claim Jesus didn't exist 
we've got to declare a bunch of other people who we really know existed didn't exist. And then that leads to a question that we should consider. If Jesus existed, and by any historic standard, forget Jesus as God, forget Jesus as God for a minute, by any historic standard, Jesus existed. We have more eyewitnesses writing firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus within a hundred years of his death than of almost any Roman emperor. In fact, we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus within 50 years of his death. It's amazing. And there are some who don't want to believe. But, you know, if Jesus existed, and, and by historic standards he did, we do need to ask ourselves a question. Why do so many claim he was God? We should explore that question a little bit, just so you understand the real reason for this season. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, bringing you some Christmas cheer with some Christmas music. That's Future of Forestry. I love Future of Forestry. That's Light Has Come uh, from their album. If you want to check out the music, I don't use Spotify regularly, uh, but if you're on Apple Music, E.W. Erickson is where I am, and you can find a Christmas Radio 2019 playlist. Uh, that is all the music you're hearing on this program, you can go check it out. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going through the historicity of faith. And he, by any historic standard, Jesus was a real human being. Uh, no credible historian, academic historian, secular, atheist, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, Jew, uh, you name it, uh, disputes that Jesus was a historic person. They, they may dispute he was the son of God. They may dispute he rose again from the dead. As Christians believe, they may dispute the virgin birth. But they don't dispute he was an actual historic figure. So, so why do so many people? Why, why do I believe he's God? It's not just by faith. You can get there by faith. But to get to Jesus's claims about himself, we, we, we need to broach a subject first. So I, I need to go there. The Bible claims Jesus had brothers. Now, at the Council of Constantinople in 8553, the early church declared that Mary was, quote-unquote, ever-virgin. And a lot of Christians believe this. Uh, it wasn't just a Catholic belief. Uh, Protestant leaders like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Zwingli, the, the others, they agreed. They interpret the reference in the Bible to Jesus' brothers and sisters as either Joseph's children from a prior marriage or his first cousins in an extended family. Uh, Catholics tend to believe it's his first cousins in an extended family. I actually believe that uh, they were Jesus's half-brothers and sisters uh, from Joseph and Mary's marriage. In fact, um, it, it's very curious that Matthew would say Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Uh, if you look at that in the original Greek, it's a very clear distinction there that, that it suggests Mary did have other children. And so I, I really do believe that uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. It is not something that's going to keep you into heaven or not. It is not something that, that Christians need to agree on. There's plenty of evidence that these early families were very close. Uh, but uh, that's what I think. Uh, we need to understand, I, I think, for purposes of this conversation, that Jesus' brothers and sisters were half-brothers and sisters all younger than him from Mary and, and Joseph. 
Um, but we at least need to recognize that they were very close members of his family. There are a number of passages in reference to them in the New Testament, and the sense of phrasing is that these were the people who knew Jesus the best. For example, Mark 6, 1 through 6, describes his family this way. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and and Simon? Are not these his sisters? Matthew 13, 53, 57 uh, says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are these not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Jude? Are these not his sisters? I mean, he had, we know, four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and, and Judas, actually, is what the Bible says. We call him Jude for obvious reasons. Uh, and he had at least two sisters. The tradition at the time uh, in, in that day and age was that the oldest son typically received his grandfather's name. We know that Joseph's father's name was Jacob. Uh, Matthew one sixteen tells us him, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the mother of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. James is the Greek derivative of Jacob. So James would be Joseph's oldest natural son, and he would be named for Joseph's father by the traditions of the day. And so we can conclude James was either Joseph's oldest natural son or the oldest son of Joseph's own brother. If the second son was indeed Joseph's son, it would make some sense. The first son is named after the grandfather. The second son is named after Joseph. That also explains why there are so many Jacobs, James, and Judases in the Bible. Jacob, in particular, was very popular given Genesis. So Jesus had a family. He had brothers and sisters, or at least first cousins, I think, family. And he had a father, an earthly father named Joseph. And we should explore all this when we come back. Welcome back. That is On Christmas Day by Small Town Poets, a good Georgia group. Uh, really, really love those guys. Uh, just just solid singers. Got great Christmas albums. You can get them on Spotify. You can get them in uh, the Apple Music Store. If you want this playlist, go to Apple Music and search for E.W. Erickson, and I've got it up there. And it is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia talking about Christmas and, and uh, the evidence for the faith. We know that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who we call Jude for obvious reasons. He had two sisters, at least. Many people may not realize this, but based on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's friends, Jesus's family thought he was a bit of a nutter, actually. Uh, so much for the liar, lunatic, or Lord framing. His family was all in for lunatic. I mean, they, they, they wanted an intervention. Uh, just get this from Mark. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 21. And, and when his family heard what Jesus was saying, heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And then beginning at verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, this was an intervention. They they wanted to seize him. They thought he was a nut. So the most extraordinary thing is that Jesus' mother Mary participated in this. This is a woman who Luke tells us the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. I mean, this is 
This is crazy. I mean, we have the entire song of praise from Mary that she she knew that she was going to be uh, the Holy Spirit would conceive in her. It, it, it just it, it's staggering to me that Mary participated in an intervention of her son with her children, or at least Jesus's first cousins. I mean, we clearly, Mary knew he was, he was of God. I mean, John chapter two, verses one through five, this is an eyewitness account by John, Jesus's friend. We know it's an eyewitness account. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She, she knew her son could do something. She knew why. And yet here's Mary trying to, to stage an intervention to seize him and carry him home. Note that Mary was struck with Jesus the whole way through his life. It, 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 she, she knew it, it stuck with her. And note that Mary then stuck with Jesus his whole life, unlike his brothers and sisters. No doubt coming to a richer and richer understanding of her son over time, Mary stuck with him. She never gave up on him. John tells us Jesus' brothers gave up on him. John 7, again, this is an eyewitness account. Uh, we know this from Polycarp. We know this from Ignatius. Uh, we know from historic, uh, we know extra biblical sources. John was Jesus' best friend. We know this from the Bible as well. We know he's an eyewitness to this. And he writes, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is Jesus' brothers confronting him, telling him that they really think if he's such a big deal, if he really thinks he's the Messiah, get thee to the big city, show everybody. He needs to tell the world, which he can't do in a small town, and really they just want him gone. And by the way, it's pretty implicit here they think he's going to get himself killed if he does this the brothers who had tried to stage an intervention had given up they wanted their brother gone and, and jesus goes he winds up being arrested tried tortured crucified the most striking thing here is his brothers didn't even show up at his execution jesus's mother's there the mother who with the brothers had tried to save Jesus from himself, staging intervention, the mother who the angel Gabriel had appeared to and told her she would be with child conceived by the Holy Spirit. The brothers never showed up. From Matthew 27, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to them. Among those were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. From Mark 15, there was also there were women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and uh, Salome. When he was in J Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up. From Luke 23, all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching. And then from John 19, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the mother of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour... The disciple took her into his home. This is John writing about what happened to him. This is an eyewitness account. From John, we learned that Jesus, dying on the cross, told John he had to look after Mary. Why? Because Jesus' brothers weren't there. 
They had tried to stage an intervention. They told him to get out of town. They didn't show up for the execution. Mary was there with no immediate family. John the Apostle had taken her into her own home, and, and Jesus died. And if that's all there was, we would say this is nonsense. The family would have been right. But something clearly happened. That's not the end of the story. From Acts 1.14, we learn that all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. These aren't the apostles. These are James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, the family members who had tried to seize him to stage an intervention. The people who thought he was nuts, they, as family, knew him best. Were he some sinner or jerk, they wouldn't have made up the early church. They were all going to get killed. Look at James. James became a leader in the early church. Paul called him a pillar of the church. Paul traveled to Jerusalem after his conversion to meet with the apostles and with James. James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the apostle. James, the brother of Jesus, James, the just, came to be referred to as camel knees because he was on his knees praying so much. In fact, Paul, writing in Galatians, says, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the Jews, for he had worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles." And from Acts 15, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them. After they finished speaking, James spoke. He was a member of the church. Paul sought out James and Peter. Paul, the guy Jesus had told to go preach to the Gentiles, went to find Jesus' brother who had rejected Jesus in life. In AD 62, early church history notes that the local Jews of Jerusalem went to James. They had a problem. They had executed Jesus, and yet the city was growing in believers, believing that Jesus was the risen Lord. And so they went to James. This is documented in history. They went to the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, and said he could testify that Jesus was not God. I mean, after all, he, he wouldn't even show up at the execution. He, he wanted nothing to do with the guy. But here's this guy who thought his brother was a nutter and is now a part of the church. He had become so invested in the idea that Jesus was the risen Lord. When he writes his book of the Bible, James's book of the Bible, he calls himself a servant. He doesn't even identify himself as the brother of Jesus. And he tells the Jews he was wrong. He was wrong. Jesus was, in fact, the living God. He, Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. So enraged were, were the, the local leaders, they carried him to the top of the temple and they threw him off it. He was, witnesses say he was proclaiming his brother, the risen Lord, the whole time. And when he didn't die, they stoned him to death and beat him with clubs until he died. The whole time, battered, bruised, broken, bleeding, going to die, proclaiming his brother Jesus was Lord. The very man he thought was a nutter, he went to his death proclaiming as God. Jesus' brother Simon took James's place. Along the way, Jesus' brother Jude became a church leader. He was eventually killed by the Roman state in the purge of Christians. Accounts are mixed as whether it was his children or grandchildren. It appears his grandchildren were called before the emperor. They testified that their relative Jesus had been talked, uh, talking about a return at the last day, not an imminent takeover of the empire, that he was king in heaven. And they were spared for a time. And then I believe it was Trajan, 
decided to exterminate the remains of Jesus's family. They literally, the Romans executed every living member of Jesus's earthly family. They all died proclaiming Jesus was alive. Something had to have happened. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that Jesus had appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive. Hint, hint, there were eyewitnesses at the time, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. It's really silly to say Jesus didn't exist. There is ample eyewitness historic record. There is more documentary evidence that Jesus existed than Socrates. Eleven of the twelve who followed Jesus were willing to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim him God. Thomas went all the way to southern India. The Portuguese, when they first made it to India, were shocked to find Christian churches in southern India. All could trace their roots to, to Thomas. Jesus' brothers became part of the church. They were executed for proclaiming him Christ, the risen Lord, the Messiah. The man named Jesus not only must have been a pretty spectacularly charismatic person who surrounded himself with charismatic people, all of whom were willing to be tortured and killed. I guess they were all con men. They were all great liars, I guess, because they were all willing to die for a lie. The people who knew him were willing to die for, you know, my sisters would never call me the risen Lord. They know me. There's no way they would be executed telling me, saying people that I was God. And yet Jesus's actual brothers or first cousins, if you're of that persuasion, they were willing to be executed to keep up a lie. No. And we know this from history, from extra biblical history, from the same history that tells us Julius Caesar existed, from the same history that tells us Nero existed, from the same history that tells us Socrates existed, the same history tells us these people rejected him in life and after death said, actually, he rose again from the dead and really is the Messiah. Clearly, something had to happen. Believe by faith in Christ as Lord. But understand, your faith has a foundation foundation of historic evidence behind it. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the annual Christmas show across the state of Georgia, around the nation of the world. Delighted to have you with me here as we explore the actual real important topics, uh, the topics that go beyond the headlines, the topics that shape us, who we are. F.F. Bruce is a brilliant scholar of the Bible. And he's a scholar on biblical accuracy. He notes there are around nine or ten manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic War. One of the most famous books written is by Julius Caesar. It's on the history of the conquest of Gaul. And we know it was composed between 58 and 50 B.C. Yet the oldest manuscript we have originates 900 years later. Bruce actually, he wrote, the history of Thucydides, written around 460 to 400 B.C., is known to us from eight manuscripts. The earliest belongs to around 8900. There are a few papyrus scraps belonging to about the beginning of the Christian era, even though it was written in 400 B.C. The same is true of the history of Herodotus, written the the most recent, 428 B.C., There's no classical scholar who would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of the works are more than 1,300 years later than the originals. 
of Scripture, we've got more than that. In fact, we can reproduce almost all of the New Testament from the writings of Ignatius, Irenaeus, Clement, uh, and Polycarp. Within a hundred years of Christ's death, we have almost all of the Gospels and a good bit of Paul being quoted. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown is there. There are over 20,000 written manuscripts in Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and other ancient languages currently known, and archaeologists keep finding new copies. The Bible is perhaps the best preserved of those ancient books, having more manuscripts originating from within 200 years of the primary sources than any other work in the Greco-Roman world. There are 5,700 New Testament Greek manuscripts known to exist. Some of them we can document were written no more than 100 years after Christ's resurrection. We do not, to our knowledge, have the original autographs, the the original letters Paul wrote, but there's plenty of mainstream scholarship, even secular scholarship, and wide acceptance that the originals were authored within 50 years of Christ's uh, death and resurrection. Many of the eyewitnesses would have still been alive. Paul even notes there were eyewitnesses still living which would who could confirm the accounts of Christ's life. And while we don't have the original autographs, we have copies early Christians wrote duplicating those letters. You know what the most amazing part of it is? They span hundreds of years, and they are remarkably free of error. We know from the Old Testament, the accuracy of the Old Testament is beyond question. It, it, they go back thousands of years. I mean, we've got copies of the Old Testament that, that go back uh, well beyond when, when Christ was born. From the New Testament, there are errors in some of the manuscripts, but we have so many of the manuscripts, we can find the consensus of what's correct, and more importantly, None of the errors affect anything substantive. None of the errors. You know, you'll get to some parts of the of the New Testament where it'll say that this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. But what's added, there, there's a reason that it was added. Oftentimes it's because we're pretty sure it actually did happen. Uh, and it, it was a later edition, perhaps by one of the original authors. But even what's added doesn't affect anything of substance. Bart Ehrman is is one of the post-Christian people. He was a Christian. He fell out of belief. He's a non-believing biblical scholar. Uh, he doesn't believe Jesus is the risen Lord or anything like that. But, but let me read you something he wrote. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. In other words... The, the essential Christian beliefs, you can't say uh, they're in error, they're based on misrepresentations. No, we, we've, got, we've got manuscripts that go back to, to within 100 years of Christ's death and thereafter, and they are remarkably consistent. Uh, very few errors. The errors don't affect the beliefs. One of those is the virgin birth. The earliest Christians believed in the virgin birth, and they believed it from the manuscripts. And you know one of the other essential beliefs? It's this. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. That's John Mark McMillan and Baby Son. I love that song. You can get all these songs on Apple Music. Uh, I, I don't have, maybe I should have a Spotify account. The podcast for the show is on Spotify under Eric Erickson Show, but I don't uh, normally do Spotify, but I've got my music list up on Apple Music if you want it. Uh, you can get these songs. I, I realize I am a political guy. Uh, you can find me on uh, HBO. You can find me on CNN. You can find me on Fox. I got a syndicated column. I, I got a website called theresurgent.com. 
I've got a daily news talk show across the state of Georgia where you're listening to me now. And I I really do think it is important to stop at Christmas and Easter and celebrate the most remarkable event in human history. And the, the most remarkable event is the resurrection of Christ. But we could not get there but for the birth of Christ, the, the virgin birth. And Orthodox Christians believe Mary gave birth to a son conceived of the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not his uh, biological father. And we should explore why that is. So people who aren't Christians, maybe they can understand us a little more. Uh, and to begin, let, let me give you some fancy words. I love fancy words, uh, fancy words from seminary. Uh, I, and if you're wondering, what is, is this guy know? Uh, I, I have been going to Reform Theological Seminary, transferred into a PhD program at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, in large part, as I said earlier, because I kept getting asked to preach on Sundays. It felt very weird that people were asking me to preach, fill in and preach, and I hadn't been to seminary. And <laughs> when these little churches realized I was Reformed, uh, uh, slightly Calvinistic, uh, go to a PCA church, I'm like, I don't think so. Um, but I love seminary. I love being able to check out a politics a, a day a week and go to class at RTS in Marietta. Uh, they've got a great campus. Uh, if you're interested in going to seminary, check out Reformed Theological Seminary uh, here in Georgia. They have a wonderful campus in Marietta. Uh, you can get it off, very easy to get to off 75, uh, wonderful people, and I, I miss them dearly. And I'm actually thinking of transferring out of the Ph.D. program at, at uh, Southeastern and going back to RTS just because I miss being in a classroom with other students. Uh, but one of the things you, you learn are the fancy words, superlapsarian and infralapsarian. Did God, before time began, plan out uh, Christ being conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, uh, suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, died, buried, ascending into hell, and three days later, rising again and ascending into heaven? Did, did he, Or was it infralapsarian? Did he wait until after the fall of man to put this together? I, I Just full disclosure, I'm superlapsarian. I believe that this has always been God's plan. If you want to ask me why, I have no idea. There are things that you cannot understand in Christianity. You really can't. I mean, the, the the further you get into explaining the Trinity, the more likely you are to trip up on heresy. It's just some things you can't explain, and don't trust people who have clear explanations for absolutely everything in the faith. Uh, they tend to be making it up themselves. There are some mysteries of faith out there. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and the Bible uses a very specific uh, Hebrew word, bara, for God created it. It's a type of creation that only God can do. Uh, God bara, the heavens and the earth. God creates the heavens and the earth in ways we can't. And this is Moses writing Genesis. And, and Moses is a prince of Egypt. He was raised to worship the Egyptian gods. And he's providing a cosmogony, that a, a theory of the creation of the universe that is completely divergent from the Egyptians. The Egyptians believed there was a sun god. The Egyptians believed there was a moon god. The Egyptians believed there were lots of gods. And here comes Moses, a prince of Egypt, saying, no, there is one god, and he creates the heavens and the earth in a way that no one else can. And that's very specific because the Egyptians believed pharaohs would become gods. And here comes Moses saying there is one god, and this one god creates everything, and he creates it in a way no man can do. He even throws in there, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning. I love that. 
And, and I love, he, he says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And so it was. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And, you know, this, this is just, he, he, made the, he made the sun, he made the moon, and he made the stars. And he put them in the expansion. And I love this because the Egyptians believed these things were God. There or were gods. And no, Moses is saying, man, they're just things in the sky. This, this is the first religion, Judaism, and, and this in Genesis, it is the first religion to believe that these are objects in the sky and not gods. It's pretty f- profound. And, and God creates them. And then he creates us in his own image, the Imago Dei. God creates us in his image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of man, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And again, the word bara. We can't, this is why Christians can't believe in transgenderism. Because it says God creates us male and female. And if God creates us male and female, we can't create, we can't bara. And the Bible uses the word bara. And God creates in a divine way that we can't do it. So Christians can't believe in transgenderism because God creates us male and female in a divine way that we can't duplicate. But we know how the story goes. He creates male and female from the dust of the earth, woman from the bone of Adam. And then the serpent comes into the garden and says, did God really say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. You shall not eat of the... you may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, keep in mind, God told Adam this before Eve had been created. And so Eve has added to it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it, but Eve adds that to it. And Eve saw the tree was good for food. She was delighted. She ate the fruit, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her Adam let Eve speak to the serpent. He didn't intervene and say, no, no, God didn't say we couldn't touch it. He just said we couldn't eat it. No, no. So so their eyes were opened and they were naked. And God punishes them. Now, no, the woman is punished through painful childbirth. The man is is really just just, I mean, sin flows through Adam. Adam is is really punished. And and why? First of all, he, he tries to blame his wife and, and says, hey, it was all her fault. Uh, what, what does he say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. But Eve was not around when God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was all Adam and Adam's passing the bug to her. Head. No, no, God, it, it's this woman, her fault. She gave it to me because did I not tell you this? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, I mean, so here's the thing. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelicum. This this is the first pronouncement of the gospel. God says that, that there will be offspring from the woman, not from the man, notice, from the woman. Uh, and there will be enmity between them and he will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Some say he will crush your head. That gives them hope. It gives hope that a Redeemer is coming. And then he exiles them from the garden. He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that prevented them from getting there, from coming back into this direct relationship with God like they had had. 
and they needed to do something. And of course, there was Cain and there was Abel, and and they, I guess they, they thought maybe, maybe, maybe Cain's it, and obviously it wasn't Cain. And so then they give birth. Eve gives birth to Seth, and they think Seth, his his name sounds like the Hebrew for he is appointed. And so it, it, they think that Seth is going to give them the rest and the peace. And, and no, it's not. And ultimately it comes to Noah, and, and Noah's name means rest. And, and clearly people think Noah's going to be the one in which they, they get the Sabbath rest. They, Noah's name is very similar to Sabbath, to the Sabbath rest. And Noah's going to be the one who gives them rest. And it's not Noah either. But with Noah... God, of course, floods the world, but saves this one man and his family and then reinstitutes his covenant. The same covenant he gave to Adam and Eve, he he reinstitutes it with Noah. You know, one of the most interesting things in the Bible is the order of creation. When God destroys the earth, it's undone in exactly the same way. What happens? There's there's the the light, and then God separates the planet, um, the waters above and the waters below and the waters beneath, and he separates it from the dry land. And, and when the world, because of sin, has polluted the entire planet, it's not just man who's polluted. Everything is polluted because of the sin. The waters burst forth from beneath and come to the land. Uh, the land, the waters then rise up from the sea to the land. The waters come down from heaven, and everything goes back to the chaos, of the celestial chaos in the exact reverse order from creation, this happens, and it's all done. It's a fascinating depiction of what sin has done. Well, we know the rest of the story. There, Noah is safe. Sin doesn't actually leave because man is is sin. Sin flows through father. This is why, by the way, Jesus had to be born of a virgin because sin flows through the father. And the Father being God is sin-free. He, he, he doesn't have sin. You know, Mary's family ultimately descends from David as well. But along the way, God paints a picture of what this is going to look like. Uh, he, he, but we see it in the garden as well. We're supposed to have a direct relationship with God. God with us. God walking. Emmanuel. We were supposed to have the Emmanuel relationship. And it takes a very long time. But what you can get from Genesis 1-1, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created it all, and he did so because he really wants a relationship with us, and that should just excite and delight you. Welcome. Merry Christmas. It's Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here for this. I try to do this Christmas Eve and Christmas and then dwell on these topics as well on Good Friday, the really the the most important weekend in human history. And I, because I, I think we spend so much time on the news of the day, and this is so much more important. The eternity is more important than the here and now. I mentioned before we went to break, Emmanuel, God with us. And I, I, God clearly wants a relationship with us. We see this at Christmas. I, I mean, he's willing to come as a babe in a manger, a feed trough. But think about where he had been. Well, When I went to seminary, the very first class I took was covenant theology. Before I took the systematics or biblical theology or even books of the Bible classes, I took, I, I didn't know any better. Sounded interesting to me. The professor was from Wales. I like Wales. I, I took the class and I loved it. I loved studying the covenants of the Bible. It was something I had never uh, 
delved into uh, in church. And, and here I am in seminary getting this. And in, in my, I got to tell you, one of the things I love is Second Samuel seven, the Lord's covenant with David. Now, when David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord Yahweh is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you were and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, Yahweh, will make you a house, a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. First of all, think of this. Uh, Nathan told David, yeah, go go for it. Go build this house. And God doesn't admonish Nathan in front of people, doesn't embarrass him. He just says, no, no, no. Go back to David and say, no, instead, thank you, David, but I'm going to build a house for you, a dynasty, and it's going to be eternal. Don't worry about building me a house. But here's the thing I love. God says, I was in the desert in a tent for my dwelling. Did I ever complain? Did I ever want more? This is the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, who brings bread from heaven and water from rocks and raises us up from the dust of the earth and stitches us together in our mother's womb. And he's living in a tent in the desert because he wants a relationship with his people. That's an amazing God. That is an amazing God. He doesn't need a, he doesn't need a fancy house. He just wants to be with his people. All of human history is God wanting to be with his people. That's amazing. That should be encouraging to you. It should be encouraging to all of us. And one day he's going to come. He says, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenants which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. But this covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man to his neighbor and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, 
the Emmanuel principle, God with us. He wants a relationship with us. That should encourage you. Sweet was a cold sky that is Labor of Love with Jill Phillips singing from Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God album. Y'all, I got to tell you, this may be my favorite modern Christmas album. Uh, it is, it's incredible the work Andrew Peterson has done. When we left out the acapella, let all mortal flesh keep silent. Uh, that is the surface of the deep. Um, and uh, they're a church over near Watkinsville. And uh, we've had third day in there from Georgia as well. Uh, we've had small town poets from Georgia. I try to get songs from people from Georgia, from churches in Georgia, particularly for good Friday. I do, uh, and I'm always happy to have churches come. And I'm always happy. I, I You know, I, I charge a lot of money to talk, but I never charge churches. I'm always happy to come. That's uh, why so I went to seminary. And, you know, the very first time I ever preached, actually, I got invited to fly out to Colorado to preach. And I had a MacArthur study Bible with me. And I mean, I was just going to be good. It was a Genesis 1-1. It was a 30-minute sermon. And, and who should plop down in front of me? John MacArthur himself. <laughs> Oh, my, my sermon, I think it wound up being about seven or eight minutes. In fact, he, he sent a note to a mutual friend of ours that he thought I did great, but I spoke too fast. <laughs> oh, but it's, it's a great distraction from politics, and that's why it stresses me out to do these shows, to plan the music, to get the request. How am I going to order the show? Uh, you know, I, I do a trial run of the show. It's the only, I speak off the top of my head every day. Uh, but this, I always record a show and I hate to listen to my voice, but I do it twice. I, I do it once here with you now, uh, but I do a previously recorded show and it, you never hear it. I hear it myself and I, I delete it all after I'm done, uh, because I want to get it right, uh, because I want the message to be right. And I want to try to be an encouragement, but I also want you to, to get a, a higher look at who I am an understanding of who I am, why I think what I think. How, what I believe and and everything like that and in my worldview and and so those who don't at least understand where I'm coming from and where Christians are coming from, y'all. Merry Christmas to you. I close this program every year. I do this and I close it with the exact same song. It was my absolute favorite song, Judy Garland. Have yourself a merry little Christmas from all of us here. Happy New Year. <laughs> 